0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Raise your hand if you have ever heard the phrase, we all have a God-shaped void. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Yeah. Um, You probably also know who said it. It was the French philosopher named Blaise Pascal. Get it? Get it? Pascal's wager, huh? all right, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. Pascal's wager, better to make a bet on believing in God and, and then to discover it wasn't true than not to make your bet on God and find out that he was true. That's Pascal's wager. Right. Okay. Okay. There we are. Thus the cards, right? Uh, full house or, or empty deck, as the case may be. Um, that's not where God-shaped void comes from. I heard I actually heard the quote this week from where the phrase God-shaped void comes from in a most unlikely source. I'm listening to a podcast. It's a discussion between a British pastor named Andrew Wilson and a social psychologist from NYU named Jonathan Haidt. I've, I've said his name before. He's an atheist. He's a psychologist. But they were both discussing what is it about humanity that can't shake the idea that there may in fact be good and evil what is it about humanity that is always looking to find a ground of meaning and purpose in their life, whether you believe in a deity or not? What, where do we go from? Where, where does that come from? And it's ironically, it's the atheist who pulls open his notes and says, here, here's a quote from Blaise Pascal to kind of put it in some terms that explain why anybody, no matter where you come from, is always trying to reach for good and evil and for meaning. And the, the quote therefore goes like this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. There was once in man a true happiness, of which there now remain to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate. Because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. He only is our true good. From that extended paragraph, we get that simple idea of there being in us all a God-shaped whole. We are all looking for happiness, and we will search for it high and low in any number of ways to fill ourselves with happiness, to be eternally and steadfastly happy, and we discover it just isn't found here. Such that we begin to wonder if the only thing that could is something that is beyond us, greater than us, that does not change, that is of the highest good. Maybe there is, in fact, a God who could do that. That's Pascal's argument. That's where happiness might be found. And you know who knows that intuitively, whether they have ever heard of Blaise Pascal or not? You know who knows that? Our kids. Our kids get that without ever being told that. You know how I know that? I asked them. You might have heard over the last several weeks, I put out a question to the kids of our church, answer me this, what makes you happy and what keeps you happy? And several of them sent in responses. And here, I welcome you to feast your ears and eyes on their rather remarkable and philosophical answers. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. So I have a question for you. Okay. What makes you happy? My family and my friends. So what makes you happy? I think animals make me happy and in interacting with them and watching them and their behavior. What makes you happy? When somebody gives me a gift and I get to go on a date with What makes you happy? What makes me happy is when someone gives me a, a very nice gift. Noah, what makes you happy? Um uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you happy? What makes you happy? Um lots of things. Especially that I know that God is and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are watching. Too. That brings me practical like joy. Snuggling with my panda while reading a book. Joy to the world. Anything else you want to add? Um, eating jelly beans while, sn- while snuggling with my panda and reading a book. If you feel like happy that's happy. what you want to do. <laughs> he, what makes you happy? Um, What makes me happy? is. I God and Jesus are always with me. What makes you happy? Um, um, Snackering. Anything else? Um, eating cake. <laughs> what makes you happy? What makes you happy? <laughs> Mommy letting me do whatever I want. So what makes you happy? When I'm with you. Oh.
1: you feel
0: like how does someone stay happy? Well, that's hard. How does someone stay happy? They can't. And happy's not like joy. Joy's down here. Happy's temporary. Happy's in your brain. Happy passes through and then it's bye bye. Yeah. What keeps me happy is when I like helping other people. They do what they love. I keep snuggling, keep eating cake. A family? Books? (laughs) Video games? My favorite stuffed animal, Benny Bunny? Pictures? Cameras? Artsy stuff? (laughs) What keeps you happy? Keeps me happy? A day full of whatever I like. Kind of actually happy. there is hope for our future. They get it. They didn't have to be read deep philosophy to understand there are all sorts of things that we might search to be happy. Relationships, gifts, um, aspirations, joys, family, whatever it might be. And yet then when it comes to the part about what keeps you happy, did you see them go, I I don't know. Maybe nothing. Maybe you can't stay happy. It's like they all intuitively understand that there is Maybe something in us that longs for something that is greater than anything we can think of. Maybe the hole is that deep that they know, even at a young age, it just, there's nothing here that will do it. And at best, you can kind of maybe get a day at a time or 10 minutes at a time. They understand what Pascal put a little bit more um, lengthily, that there is, a desire for happiness that's true. We might look for it in a number of places, and yet it may require that there be something larger than us that we haven't thought of that would be able to fill it. And therefore, it all comes down onto what you want. That's why we are, in this season of our life together, listening to the Sermon on the Mount. Because if finding our happiness is, in some sense, connecting And embracing what is good, everybody in that video was all talking about stuff that's good and they get connected to it. Then we want to know what is that good that brings us that kind of steadfast happiness? Well, that's what Jesus is out to outline in His Sermon on the Mount. He is out to show us, in particular, in this beatitude that we're going to listen to today, that it has everything to do with where our heart's desire is found, it comes down to what you want. You can want all sorts of things, but it matters what you want if you want to know about something that remains. And so we're going to consider what is that highest good that has to do with our desire, and we're going to listen to that very short beatitude and consider three things about desire. The priority of desire, the problem with desire, and the promise for desire. The priority of it, the problem with it, the promise for it. And I thought of all those voices, none other than Anna Ray was the one who had the riest answers. So I've invited Anna to come forward and read our passage this morning. So if you are able to stand in honor of God's word and Anna's courage, would you stand to hear? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Matthew 5, 6. For this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> to do whatever I want. I'm going to try that with the wife and see if it gets me anywhere. Yeah, okay. Um. Jesus is out to tell us a number of things in this very short verse, one of which has to do with the priority of desire. And to kind of set that up, let's just put those words in context, that so far we're only um, just a few verses into the Beatitudes. They've all had to do with the inner life. When he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he's talking about an inner recognition that we have nothing to come to God with and say, see, look at my wares. Um, would you bless me? He looks at us as if we're broke because we are. And he's talking about our inner condition. Such that when he then says, blessed are those who mourn, well, it's true that we might think he's thinking of everything that might bring us sorrow. I think a good argument can be made that mournfulness follows on the heels of recognizing your own inner poverty of sensing that you are broke and there is nothing you've got to fix the situation. You are entirely dependent on something coming from outside you to enrich you. And therefore, when that he says, blessed are those who are meek, as Ben preached to us last week, that's an inner condition. It's expressed outwardly through gentleness and through deference and, and the resistance to be condemning in any sort of way because you realize Any good you've got is a good that came from outside you when it comes to the goodness of the Lord. Meekness follows. And Jesus is just going to take that conversation about the inner life in a new direction this week and say that everything comes down to the highest good. It comes down to what you want, to your desire. That's the priority. That's when he says, blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst. It's about a desire that we all have. Look, You and I can say all sorts of things, we can do and perform all sorts of actions, but I know who you are by what you want. I know what holds you together by where your affections, what is the object of your desire. And so, when we're talking about the priority of desire, Jesus is here to say, it matters what you want. See, We all think of our wants as sort of something that sort of comes and it goes and doesn't really matter. And we all talk about motives and how our motives are mixed and all those things are true. And yet God's interest is always and everywhere on the condition of our hearts. When when David is anointed um, before his brothers and Jesse, uh, the text says uh, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. In First Chronicles, it says the, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro, always looking to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. And then even later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The reason they don't call it a woman's speech or a woman's actions, but a woman's heart is because that's, where, that's, that's, that's the only conversation worth having. You can, I mean, what you profess and and what you think is important and and what ways you put that profession into practice matters. But what you really want will either prove the truth or the falsity of what you say or what you do. So the, the priority of desire is a matter of what you want. And yet, to put it a little bit slightly different, it's not just what you want, it's what you want. Desire is certainly the focus of god 's attention, but but that desire has an object, it has an intended object, and therefore Jesus says it 's not only about what you want it 's about what you want, where your desire lays and He would say that that desire has everything to do with one thing: righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does he mean look um, kids. Um you smack your sibling? I'm no it's theoretical. Um, mom says, "What do you say sorry?" And they say, "Sorry." Cuz they mean it, right? And then mom says, "Say it like you mean it." Because that always helps. Because it's a very effective parenting strategy, and then all you've done is teach your kid how to lie a little better. Oh, I I am so sorry, mother. Right. See what 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 are they interested in? Just getting past the moment. That's the object of their desire. It's not righteousness. What does Jesus mean by righteousness here? What is that desire that hunger and thirst for righteousness is about? What one righteousness is not a word we use very often, right? R- righteousness we we kind of say, "Oh, dude, that was a righteous meal." Right? A righteous meal or or we will say, stop being so self-righteous. You know, get off your high horse. So that, that word, it's a throwback term almost. It's got this really narrow niche of use. But look, um, you've you got to reintroduce that into your vocabulary if you're going to understand the Bible, because it's threaded through everywhere. And so what does Jesus mean by blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? One, one could think, one could argue that Jesus is talking about that righteousness that is our acceptance before God. We are righteous in his sight because of what Jesus has done for us fully and finally. We have his belovedness because Jesus is that for us. It is not a righteousness we earn. It is not a, it is not a hill we climb that if we make it, he is, we are righteous in his sight. It is a righteousness that we are given, that we receive. One could argue that Jesus is talking about that. When you press into that, though, you, you think, words always have a context. And in this context, the word righteousness, well, let's listen to that context. Because in just a few verses, Jesus will say, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now, one might wonder how one or why one would be persecuted for simply believing that they have their righteousness, their righteousness, status, their acceptance before God. It it doesn't quite compute unless there's another meaning of righteousness there, such that a little bit later, Jesus will say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, dot, dot, dot. So in that situation, look, uh, your status of being accepted is an either yes or no. There's not a, a gradation of that. So how you can say that your righteousness exceeds that of one or the other Again, that that earlier definition of righteousness may not compute. Paul says in Philippians 3, if we can jump back to that slide, he says, For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is a proper righteousness. That is our status before God. But here in this beatitude, I believe it's proper, more proper to say that Jesus is talking about that holy, righteous character of God that has come to land upon our hearts and has come to be, a, if you will, to seep out of us into the world. It is the sense of God's character coming to be so astounding to us that we, we begin to take it in, we begin to receive it, and we begin to embody it such that it begins to light in all places. And that righteousness extends not only within individuals, but through them and out into the world. And so you will hear in the psalmist over and over again, I hunger and thirst for the living God. My soul pants, it longs for the living God. It's this sense in which God's righteousness has come to be embraced and embodied both in and through us. Jesus is saying the highest good that life of flourishing, the blessedness that we might know to be in him is that blessedness that has a proper desire for God's holy character existing and spreading out through us. That's righteousness. Now you've got to be careful because when we're talking about righteousness and you read on into the Sermon on the Mount and he, he starts talking about all ways in which our character is formed, you will be tempted to think that righteousness is simply a set of habits to cultivate. Or, or only the idea that it's sort of an ethical code that you, you abide by or you comply with. It is ethics, but friends, this righteousness, you have to understand its nature. It is, it is greater than just um, a right speech, a right action. It is, it is greater than an ethical code that you abide by. The nature of this righteousness is something else. And I think one way or a good illustration of what this righteousness is is just to think about beauty. Beauty. And art and artistry. What is art? What do artists do? They're the ones that are out to capture something true and beautiful and grab it and isolate it and revel in it and recreate it and share it. They delight in what they find, they capture a measure of what they can, they represent it in some form or fashion, and then they give it to the world. Now, whether anybody sees that art or not, they don't care. It's it's the beauty in itself that draws them to grab it, capture and represent it. But surely they delight in being able to give some of it away. Kids, when you love something, do you know what you love to do? You love for other people to share in it. That's why you yell, "You got to come see this!" You got to come do this. With me. You got to jump on the trampoline with me. I can do a backflip. What you come to love, you want others to share in that that which you love because you have found something so remarkable that you've got to get it out there. That's, that's what artistry is. That's what beauty is. That's the nature of this righteousness. It's not just a set of codes you abide by. If I can distill that down into to simplest terms, it's it's loving the God, you're loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the righteousness of God that one begins to embrace and see as beautiful. But if I can. If I can show you a little snippet of it, I want to I show you a clip from a, a film that you might have seen called The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I know. That story about takes place at a prison uh, back east in Pennsylvania, and uh, everybody there who's uh, been incarcerated thinks that they're innocent, that they were you know uh, falsely accused, falsely um, convicted. And there's one guy, Andy Dufresne, who himself, too, is convicted of a crime that he says he didn't commit, but he seeks to make the most of his experience in prison, and he kind of becomes um, kind of like the one that wants to reconnect all of these prisoners with what is good, true, and beautiful he He refuses simply to treat them as the vermin that 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 wardens and the policemen would just as soon treat all these inmates. He wants to treat them as if they have souls, and he wants to connect them to the good and so he he demonstrates the great authority and integrity that it's almost like uh, Joseph in Pharaoh's house. You know he was once incarcerated and then he kind of shows his integrity and he starts being put in great deal of authority and responsibility. And here in this scene, Andy Dufresne, he's he's so earned the trust of his policemen that he actually locks one of them in the bathroom so that he can gain access to the record player and the AV system. And here in this moment, he is going to share a little bit of beauty with everybody in that prison, no matter what anybody else is going to say to him. Watch this. this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words, and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you those voices soared, higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. They'd never heard it before. They don't know what those two ladies are singing. They don't have a category for what that was. They just know they should stop in their tracks and hear it. All they know is that they have been invited into a moment that they dare not trample upon because they've become connected to something good and true and beautiful that they have no other words for. And anybody that would want to disrupt that moment would be stared down with the fiercest stare like, like, this is sacred, stop it. That's the character of this righteousness that Jesus is saying is the priority of our desire. Not only that we are desiring and that we must focus on what we want, but it is focused on what we want. So as you read on in the Sermon on the Mount, don't just hear them as codes. Don't just hear them as practices. Hear and listen for the beauty beneath the directive. That's the priority of our desire. And that's what leads us to the problem of desire. Because all that I might say about the beauty of his righteousness for which we might properly long, the truth is we have a problem when it comes to our desire. And this is the problem when it comes to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We don't want to. As beautiful as the scene may be, it is contrived. That is a story. And though there is a kernel of truth in it, the truth of our hearts is that we don't want the righteousness. How do I know that? Why would Jesus try to tell us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness if that hunger and thirst came to us naturally? Why waste his breath? Why would he spend the lion's share of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount outlining for us what is that highest good if there weren't some impulses in our life, some desires in our heart that seem to be more compelling than the desire for his righteousness? That's the problem. We don't want it. We want other things. We don't believe that is true. And you know how I know that is true? If you'll just listen to any psychologist, they will tell you that you and I are naturally and most profoundly motivated by one thing. The preservation and protection of our reputation. How we are seen and thought of. That's what drives us. And you know what? You knew that when you were five at recess. Because when it came to the kickball game, the one thing you didn't want was to look stupid. And the one thing you most wanted was to feel important in the eyes of others. Living for the glory of God, seeking to honor him in all your ways, it wasn't really at the top of your list. Just not looking to others like you were foolish. Your reputation most mattered. And therefore, if we don't want his righteousness, then we're really rarely going to reflect his righteousness. We don't want it. That's the problem of desire. But if I, again, may put it slightly differently. Not only do we not want it, we don't want it. We, in other words, may think we really want his righteousness, but in fact, we will settle for something far more sinister and insidious. And by that, I mean this. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is gonna use this word pretty often that you've heard of before. It's the word hypocritical. You hypocrites, he'll say over and over again. And you and I, when we think of using the word hypocrite, we usually think of it this way. Oh, he says one thing and then he does something else. What a hypocrite. That's how we think of it. That's not what Jesus means when he talks about hypocrisy. It's sort of a more ancient understanding of that word. And when Jesus says hypocrite, he means this. It's when people do one thing but their hearts are set on something quite different. It's not a say versus do thing. It's a do one thing, but your heart's really somewhere else. But it just gives off the appearance of it being set somewhere else. So Jesus will say, and not to steal too much of my thunder when we get into chapter 6, but Jesus is going to talk about hypocrisy in terms of you go after a reward, which is in fact not really a reward. It's a counterfeit. And we all go there. Look, straight up. How many times have I caught myself acting in a way that had all the appearances of humility and forbearance and wisdom and deference when really at the bottom of it is just naked self promotion? How about you? There's all sorts of ways in which we kind of give off this air of, oh, I'm seeking to be righteous, when in fact, no, I'm just seeking to make you think that I am. That's the problem. I'm preaching this week on blessed are those who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And on Friday, I get my kids in the car and we're bickering about not being able to get the door closed. And I start screaming at my kids. Why? Because I wanted to give other people a chance to win father of the year. I wanted to give somebody else a chance. And because it's January, why belabor the point? In that moment, I wanted something else than a righteous way of responding to my children. And that's our problem. We don't want it. And if we do, it's not really it. It's something else. And you and I might hear that and go, yeah, yeah, I get that. And some of us might go, yeah, I'll even admit that. And maybe, maybe the real mature around us will go, I kind of grieve that. I kind of don't like that in me. But here's the thing. That really won't get real to you until you see the problem with the problem of desire. Our problem is we don't want it, or we want some counterfeit version of it, but here's the deal. There's a problem with that problem. And the problem with the problem is that if we go there, we think we'll get gain, but actually we end up consuming ourselves. Like the, the loss is worse than whatever gain we think we'll get. Now, it's been over a year since I quoted this guy, so you've probably forgotten it. But David Foster Wallace was an author who gave a really frank and candid Commencement address at Kenyon College about 12 years ago, 15 years ago. And in the middle of a commencement address, he doesn't talk about the word righteousness, but he does talk about the word worship, which I think you could say that everybody is out to find their righteousness by what they worship. And so listen to what he says again. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. And because David saw me coming, worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. There in that last sentence, he shows his hand. He does not believe in God or does not have any kind of firm commitment to the idea of theism. And that's why he doesn't think that this, I think, is a sinful thing. Where we do agree with David Foster Wallace is right. There's all sorts of things we might worship, and every one of them will leave us hanging and empty in within. But friends, to pursue an alternative righteousness, the worst part of it is not that it will eat you on the inside. It is that it is an offense to the one who gave you life. It is an offense to the one who gave you the gifts of his righteousness. To seek some sort of alternative form of righteousness through your worship, it will eat you from the inside. A couple weekends ago, I had a chance to watch that film again, that sci-fi flick Ender's Game, written by a guy named Orson Scott Card. And as I watched the film, I remember reading the book and the introduction where one of Orson Scott Card's fans wrote him a letter just saying how resonated he much did with one of the characters. And in that very candid letter, one of Orson Scott Card's fans said this, All our lives, we've been unconsciously living by the philosophy, the only way to gain respect is doing so well, you can't be ignored. However, in choosing this path, most of us have ended up very satisfied in ourselves, but very lonely. Successful to a point, but in the end, Greater loss than gain. And there's some guy you may have heard of, he's playing in some football game next week, named Tom Brady. He's uh, playing for his, uh, I think, 75th title. Um, Thanks to Walt Childs this week, I learned that the the players he's playing with this week were when he won his first championship, they were all still teething at the time. And now they're playing with him in the Super Bowl. But in an interview he gave in 60 Minutes when he was 27, he said this candidly. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I'll reach my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Who knows if, however many titles later, he holds the same thought. But even then, he gets it. Whether you are a prolific and successful and tormented author, whether you are a kid who is gravitating towards a story that makes you feel like you're alive, or you are a football quarterback that's about to, again, reach the top of his game and be thought of for years or decades, if not forever, everybody gets it. You form an alternative form of righteousness, and you are still wondering, why is the hole not full that's the problem with the problem and it's not just a problem it's an impossible problem which makes the last thing jesus says the nuttiest thing we might imagine and i don't mean i mean it with the greatest respect jesus because when he says that there's a priority to our desire that's true and yet he certainly implies that the problem with our desire is greater than the priority and yet what he says here at the end is that there is something even greater than the problem. And what is greater than the problem is the promise for our desire. The promise is greater than the problem, which is greater than our priority. And what is that promise? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Greater than just you and I kind of filtering our way into certain habits and codes and Practices and behaviors, there is something that he is saying where we will have a wholehearted embrace about that which we find beautiful in his word. And that desire will not go unmet. Greater than just laws and codes and cultural shifts and trends and fads, there will be something that takes hold throughout the world. That desire will not go unmet. That righteousness will be Seated and will take root and will blossom. Which is why Jesus says to that woman in John 4, this thirst you have, the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. The bread of life, which is my body, that I will give to anyone who will take it, you will never be hungry again. When Paul says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, he's just reiterating what Jesus is saying here. Those who desire, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they... They will be satisfied. And we hear that and we go, why would you make a promise like that, given the problem we have with that desire, given how easily we buy into a counterfeit form of it? Why will you make that promise? Because that's his plan. Everybody walks into the room on any given day, and they all believe that they're here for a reason. You all believe you have a point. And those who are the most hopeless feel like they have no point. Here's your point. Here's why you're here, according to Paul in Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, why? To be conformed to the image of his Son. Everybody who is a human is made in the image of God by virtue of their being human. But those who have been called and predestined to his glory, they're out to be remade into the image of the Son of God. That's your point. That's why we're here. That's the, that's the purpose. That's your to d'etre, you French speakers. That's why he says what he says. That's why he makes that promise. The question is, though, how's he going to do that? Because it seems more daunting than even he can do. Because just survey the playing field. Survey the playing field. How's he do it? He tells us what's good. Read on in the Sermon on the Mount. He will outline it. He will frame it up. He will put parameters on it. and He will explain why it works. Because we all need an idea. A concept of what is good and what is righteous. He doesn't just tell us, though. He also shows us. Because we need a picture of what righteousness looks like. He shows us by what he does. And so as you read on, do not only look for what he says, but for how he puts that into practice himself. He tells, he shows. But you know what else he does? He dies. He dies to forgive and dies to count us righteous to count us as in him. And therefore, if we are in him, we are in God's beloved. And therefore, we are righteous in his sight because we're in Jesus. He dies to, to count us righteous. And then when he dies and rises, he sends us himself. He sends us his spirit to work righteousness within us. He tells, he shows, he dies, he sends. Why? For one simple reason. So that you and I would live, not so that we're out to gain something from God, to obtain His love, but to actually live as we believe that we already have it. And that might seem like a very subtle distinction, but those could not be as far apart from each other as anything you could imagine. If I were want your love, but I do not have your love, then I will do all sorts of things to get something from you, to get your love from you, if I don't think I have it, but I want it. But if I want your love, and I have that love, then I will instead be compelled to do all sorts of things for you. Not to get something from you, but to do things for you because I know your love is real and everlasting and steadfast, even when mine is not. The good news of Jesus is that he tells, he shows, he dies, he sends to deliver us from trying to get from God what we already have from him in Jesus. And that changes the character of all our living, all our loving, all our believing. He's out to rescue us to try to get something from God and instead show us by the beauty of his love what it means to live for God. How do you know if that is starting to make sense, if you are starting to believe that in fact what you have from him is his and his by his nature alone and by his grace alone? As one pastor put it, you get it when this is true, when you believe this, that we are so loved that we don't despair when we do wrong, but so sinful that we have no right to be puffed up when we do right. when you are neither despairing at your sorrow over the absence of righteousness, nor catty or cocky, when you demonstrate what might seem like righteousness, you're beginning to see what it means not to live as if to get something from him, but simply to live for him. So I might say by way of conclusion this. If you have never, ever admitted to yourself that you are not okay, And if you are beginning to be persuaded that in fact there is in Jesus a promise that is worth buying into, that he in fact has a love that looks not just past your sin, but covers it and forgives it. If you're starting to think that Jesus is one who might take you as you are and love you in spite of yourself, then I am calling you by the grace of God and by the effectual calling of his spirit to take him. Confess And be baptized in him. Identify with him because he will take you as you are and you will hold on to him. Take him. And then if you take him, with everybody else in this room and elsewhere that might have already done that, take heed. Take heed at what he said. Read on in the Sermon on the Mount. Linger at length. Whatever part starts to rub you wrong or... Get you, get you a burr in your saddle and sit with that for a while, and maybe you got to sit with it until you start admitting it, confessing it, and repenting it. Take heed. Take his words. Take them seriously. But don't only take heed. Take heart. Like I said to you the very first week we started this series, you don't want Anybody other than Jesus leading you towards that which is good. Because when you fall flat on your backside when you're showing anything but good, it's his hand you want to help you pick you back up. Because when you feel the sorrow of the absence of righteousness in your soul, you need to realize that that is the presence of the desire for righteousness that he will satisfy. Hear that again. When you sorrow over the absence of righteousness in your heart, you need to take that as proof of evidence of the presence of that desire that he will not leave unmet. Take heart as you take heed once you've taken him. It is by his grace that he's called us to stand in his name. And it is by his grace that he's called us to fall on it when we fail. Just like the song we're about to hear, And if you know it, sing. This is his grace and his happiness is found in it. A happiness that leads us to the good in him who is good and whose good love is everlasting. Let's pray. There is much, Father, we admit that competes for the allegiance of the one who is the giver of all good things. We are ones who wish to stand with courage. But too often we see ourselves as having anything but courage or faith. And so we ask that surely as you inspire us to stand on grace, that you would also help us to fall in it too. And to know that there is a grace that is inexhaustible in your son. And for that we give him praise. And in that we find our song. In Jesus' name, amen. in the morning than the sun, more that shines in the night than just the